Hello and welcome, friends, hearers, watchers, and homewreckers. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Homewrecker Podcast. I am the Golden Greek, Alex Arion, joined as always by my beautiful, lovely, gorgeous, amazing, certified hypnotherapist mm-hmm. wife, Yes. the lovely Monique. Hi. How are you? I'm fabulous. Thank you. How are you? Doing fantastic. As always. I love it. Yes. Love it. Doing great. Yeah. What's new with you? What's going on? Anything fun or exciting you'd like to share? I made bread today. Well, I made the dough. (laughs) I made bread today. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you're going to, that's always what you're going to find on the Homeworker podcast. I made bread. I made bread. I I made two different kinds of bread. So (laughs) I got up this morning, I made my dough so I can bake it tomorrow because you got to let it rise, but I did just a regular like crusty bread. And I also did one with lavender that I ground up into a powder and then honey. And then when I go to bake it, cause I put it in a Dutch oven, I'm going to put more honey over it and like kind of s- just spread honey over the top and a little more like just lavender cause it's edible lavender and like let that get nice and golden brown. And I'm excited because I think it would go really good with tea. Lavender and bread. Yeah. When you told me that earlier, I was, yeah, I, I guess I'm just going to have to taste it. It's just weird because it's not something you hear all the time. No. People well, putting lavender and bread. I, I used it when I made my macarons and they were delicious. What did you call them? Macarons. Macarons. It's like the, oh, little, the little cookie thing. They're like the cookies okay, with gotcha. the filling in the middle. So it was, and it was good. Yeah, it was good. The lavender. Lavender. I always I, I always see lavender like in our hand soap. Yeah. That's why it's just kind of weird. Like I'm gonna eat well, this and yeah. bread. Like what? people oh, right. use it in tea. I use it in incense a lot. It's nice. A multi-purpose flower. It is. All right. It was just funny because you said that, and I was like, "What does multi-purpose flower like? We use bread flour." <laughs> oh, you thought I meant F L O U R. It took a moment to register. Gotcha. But yeah, I made bread. And I actually, on my website, Tara by Monique, and my Etsy shop, Wonders by Monique, I have crystals up. I don't often put up crystals because it's a lot of work. I get them raw and rough. And to get them ready for sale, it takes a bit of time. So I do have some crystals up. I'll have some more out soon. But go check it out. See what I have for crystals. I have some, some pretty cool stuff. Check it out. Yes. And for hypnotherapy, if you want to schedule a free 20-minute consult with me, go for it. Just go to innerstandingshypnosis.com. Yeah. And you, my love. I like it. Yeah. Like what it about lot. you? What's going on with you? The, the usual, just uh, 
educating my children at home. Mm-hmm. And you're doing is, a wonderful job. Uh, I okay. Thank you. It's it's one of those you never know how you're doing because it's so anybody out there that is thinking about if you haven't already thinking about taking your kids out of school. Home education is do it good. if you can. Yeah, <laughs> do it if you can. Uh, if for nothing else, uh, because it's it's just the the quality time that you're spending with your kids. It's it's amazing. But it, it obviously it's very challenging, especially if you have more than one that you're doing it for and different ages. But it is it's exhausting. It's rewarding. It's all of those things. But uh, yeah, it, it's it is time consuming, too, obviously. But it's. It's, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. So I, I was never one for home education when I was growing up because the kids that I knew that were homeschooled were really religious. Well, there was like a stigma and, with it. And there was a stigma when, you know, when we were growing up. And now it's like I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. I feel like even when we first started home education because it was before everything happened in 2020 – we started doing it because it was the best thing for our oldest son. And there, it, it, I mean, some school people, some of the teachers trying to talk us out of it and be like, oh, you know, was that really the best thing in socialization? And it was like, he needs to have like, he, he like there are no schools that are going to be good for him. So this, this is what he needs. So that's why we did that because it was for his best interest. And it's working out great. He's doing way better than he did in regular public school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, all three of them are, are really, yeah. it's just amazing watching them develop. And it's great too, because you can move at your own pace. So if a child is having a difficult time with something, you can take that extra time and, and make sure they're really grasping the concept or the lesson that you're trying to teach. And, and if they're just flying through stuff like bang, 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 then they're just going to be further along than, they would be if they were in public school. I mean, heck, our, our seven-year-old is in fourth grade reading right now mm-hmm. and third grade math. And if he was in public school, he'd just be starting second grade. So it's one of those things. It's 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 got its good and bad, obviously, like anything else. But uh, for me, in, in our situation, the good definitely outweighs the bad. So, and, and I really can't think of anything bad, honestly. So I don't know. It's one of those deals. That's, that's what I'm up to most of the time. Uh, but anybody that's gone to my website has noticed it's down. Yes. Because I've had it down for a while. So I'm trying to redo and retool it and reorganize the way it looks and things. So it should and be what, back up pretty soon. And what you've done so far, because I got to see it, <laughs> it looks really good. Oh, uh, thanks. Yeah. I, it's just kind of one of those things, trying to find something that looks pleasing to the eye. We don't have fancy IT people to do our websites (laughs) for us. Yeah, and that's the thing. We try to figure all this stuff out on our own, and we try to help each other out. You know, one one will figure something out on their website. They're like, oh, look, check this out. Do this. So, yeah, it's kind of what we're we're definitely a do-it-yourself operation. Yes, we are. With everything, with this podcast, with with everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of trial and error, but it's fun. I mean, it's... 
it's there's nothing like being your own boss, I guess. Yeah. And speaking of the so. podcast, um, I just want to mention merch. We got some new merch yeah. added on the website. I kind of like forgot about it for a while. And I was <laughs> like, oh, I can't neglect this. So you can see my, for all our watchers, you can see my Homewrecker family dinner t-shirt. Yes. You can get that. And we also have uh, this family dinner logo on a mug now. And you can get your own Homewrecker mugs, like the kind we give to our guests. And we have fanny packs because you have to. They're awesome. You have to. Stickers, hoodies, sweatshirts, it's getting chilly out. So, yeah. Yeah. It is hoodie weather for so check sure. Out, check out the shop. Yeah, definitely check that out. And, uh, you know, anything you get, it helps support the show. We, we, we really don't get much from it. Like, we, what you're paying is really <laughs> <laughs> the cost of it. We get like maybe a couple bucks. That's it. If if nothing else, or it, it's it's comfortable, obviously, you're showing support. Yeah, we buy the stuff ourselves before we put it out. So. Right. Yeah. We always check, you know, t- test the merchandise, if you will. Uh, but, yeah, monetarily, it's not like a big money maker or anything like that. It's but just it's it's a more way to so show support. You show support, and also if you're wearing it out in public, it kind of helps spread the word, and helps get more eyeballs, more yeah. ears listening, more eyeballs watching, and just kind of helps to grow the audience and everything. So we really appreciate any support that we get from our audience, and we're thankful for everybody that that's listening now and everybody that's going to hopefully be listening in the future. Yes, we appreciate you. Yeah. We love you. And and actually, it's funny. Earlier, we were you were showing me some. You were cleaning out your your iPhone. You know, you're doing like your annual delete stuff that you don't need, kind need of thing to, to free space. up space and that whole thing, which got me doing it as well. And you were showing me a video of us when we first first started podcasting, and it was just it was funny because it was me getting angry and upset and just like annoyed by the way like a conversation was going. And it was something that we never, we had never made air or anything like that. But, but no, it's just, it was just funny because I'm looking at, it, I'm like, wow, in two years, just seeing how much, like you see your children grow up if you have kids, but it's, it's, I don't know if rare is the, is the thing, but I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it, it's, it's funny looking back at how I was and just seeing like how much I've grown just in two years doing, just doing this show and how I've just kind of mellowed out a lot. I don't let as much get to me <laughs> as I used to. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's just age or what. I think it's because I hypnotized you. Could be that too. But uh, yeah, it's just, it, it was just funny looking at that and going, wow. I was, I was kind of a jerk there in that little clip. So anyway, I don't know. Uh, if, if you listen to early episodes and you, and you hear me getting fired up about something or us kind of having a little back and forth spat, it was probably mostly my fault because I just. Well, it, usually we do it on purpose. Like we like to have fun going yeah, back and forth. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes, yeah, you get really fired up about something because <laughs> yes. I like to be silly and have fun. And I think maybe that's a little bit of my flaw is sometimes even where other people want to be serious. I don't want to. I just want to enjoy myself. I want to be able to laugh and like why b- bring yourself down and get so serious and everything. I'd rather keep myself elevated. And so I was just trying to have fun and make you smile and laugh. We're talking like, about that particular clip. Yes, that, that, that clip. I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, are you done? Are you done? <laughs> it was so bad. Are you done? <laughs> Can't even get my point out. Are, are you done yet? And I'm just sitting there smiling. And I'm watching myself like, wow, I was really upset there. Like, why? <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, obviously two years have passed. I'm looking back 
I'm completely removed from the situation now, and I'm just looking and going, what was my problem? Like, what what on earth was I thinking there that got me so fired up and so upset? It just, it's kind of comical now looking back at it. But. Well, honey, lucky for you, I was able to laugh then, and it's just yeah. even that much more funnier now. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said to you afterwards, what, I, what, what did I say to you? Thanks for staying with me. <laughs> like, what a jerk I was. Like, what the hell? And I mean, and obviously that's that's a very small amount of time where because we don't stay mad at each other i gotta say we're very lucky in that way that we communicate if something's bothered us we talk about it we don't like you know hold stuff in or whatever we, i think we have a very healthy relationship in that way uh but anyway um i, I think we should move on now because <laughs> this has totally gone way yeah. away from we've gone it's, sideways it's gotten away from us now the conversation's gotten away from where so we wanted where it to do go. we want to go so this week we're coming back to a rather popular topic. I wish it wasn't something that existed that was real, but it is. So it is something that it gets a lot of attention and gets a lot of uh, a lot of interest anytime we talk about it. And that's missing four one one. These are fascinating cases to talk about, but I mean, and sometimes the stories have a good ending. Missing people get found and what have you, but uh, oftentimes they're not. And when they are, they're not alive. So I like the good endings. I like the good endings too, but you know, that's the reality of it. It's, it's kind of, it can be a sad subject, but a fascinating one nonetheless. And I mean, I just want to throw out there too, like, and, and the stories that we share, we want people get the books. If you have an interest in it and you haven't get the books because there's a lot of information and I've said it before, but I like to look at it like the more you can educate yourselves on these types of situations, hopefully the more prepared you can be that if you are going out in the wilderness or just, you know, if something's going on, be aware of these circumstances and these situations. So maybe it might help you be prepared for something. I, I, the way these stories go, it seems like you never know, but... The, the thing with these is, yes, you said, mentioned the wilderness and going out in, into the forests and, and things like that. But as as the missing 411 criteria, the phenomenon of it, the cases, whatever you want to call it, the cases that get labeled as that, it kind of expanded out of the wilderness too. Yes. And a lot of missing persons cases that fit the missing 411 uh, criteria ended up showing up in other places too, in cities. Mm-hmm. Not just in the United States, but worldwide. So it's kind of grown and it makes you wonder, like, really, what is going on? And once you think you may, you maybe have it figured out. Every time we do this, it's yeah. like a different theory coming out. Like, what could yeah. it be? Just because yes. we don't want it to happen to other people and we, we want to try to figure it out. So. Everybody, you know, everybody wants to figure it out, right? Missing people. I mean, because you don't want people to go missing. Exactly. Do you remember when they used to put pictures of missing kids on milk cartons? Yes. Did, did you know that they've never found any of those kids ever? I've heard that. Not one of them has ever been found. And there's a theory that those were all fake. I've heard that. Yeah. But, but anyhow, uh, I mean, we've been hearing stories of, uh, or maybe even personally known people that have gone missing. And David Politis discovered a whole new classification of these missing people that had gone missing in the wilderness and forests, like we said. And he labeled these cases missing 411, and they all fit a certain profile. So he did his first few books and appeared on 
nationwide radio podcasts, and the attention and interest to these cases grew. So as more information gets discovered, more more research is getting done, more people are submitting cases to David Politis and his team. Like I said, the, the, the profile of these cases expanded out of the wilderness and the forest. Now, currently, there are 10 books that have been written by David Politis about the missing 411 uh, cases. And he's also done two documentary films that we've even talked about them on our show. Mm-hmm. So the book that we're going to focus on today came out in 2017, and it's called Missing 411 Off the Grid. So before it, it is, yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it feels weird calling something like this good. It's well written, well put together. The research is solid. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but before we get into the cases, I want to first go over for anybody that maybe not is, is not familiar or even if you are a little refresher, what gives a missing person's case or disappearance a missing 411 label or classification? One of the first things is that if a canine is involved, they cannot find a scent. Or they find a scent, but they lose it. Or they find a scent or they lose it. Or in some cases, they've actually stopped searching. Something spooked them and they've stopped searching. Okay. Weather is another one. Weather always seems to take a turn for the worst, just as the person is, e- is either going missing or right after they've been found to have disappeared And in every case that weather is a factor, it always impedes the efforts of the search and rescue teams in locating the missing person. Always makes it difficult. Obviously, you know, inclement weather is going to make it so you can't track people. You know, if it's loud, like a thunderstorm raining, maybe the missing person is not going to hear people calling for them or the missing person is not, the the search is not going to be able to hear the missing person maybe calling for help. You get it. Weather. Victims being found in areas that were previously searched is another common factor. Missing clothes or shoes. So a victim found either missing clothing or shoes. And sometimes they're totally naked. That has happened. The time of disappearance is usually late afternoon or early evening. Not every case, but in the majority of the cases, this is a trend that has been found. Disability or illness. Disability could be something as simple as a knee brace on the knee would be considered a disability. Injury even. Yeah. An injury. uh, It could be even, you know, mental disability. You know, there's been stories of autistic children, you know, that kind of thing. So anything that could be considered disability, whether it's a temporary disability or, or, or something permanent that, that could also. Mental or physical. Right. Thank you. The missing are often found near creeks, rivers, ponds, lakes, or streams. Bodies of water. Yes. Boulders and granite. One of the biggest clusters of these missing 411 cases is Yosemite National Park. It has a high concentration of granite, which makes me wonder. We live in New Hampshire, the granite state. And he actually mentions in this book that, strangely enough, there's not a ton of cases in New Hampshire. There's not, which is weird. Makes me feel a little bit better. I, I, I feel better about it, I guess. But is it... Because maybe they just haven't been discovered yet, or I, I don't know. So I actually, I was looking up, it was, the, I think it was the New Hampshire State Police put a link out, and they were working on trying to solve cold cases of people gone missing, 
And I was like, oh, how many are from the White Mountains? And trying to look at the different mountains and see. Most of it was just random stuff, like in the city, because I'm trying to read all the circumstances. Could any of these be a missing 411 type case? And I really couldn't come across anything. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Swamps and bogs is another one. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are found in the middle of a bog or a swamp. Typically areas that if you're missing or, or lost, for example, you're not going in the middle of a swamp to try to get to better, you know, higher ground or whatever, or a bog. You're not going in that. I mean, that's rough terrain. That's not easily traversed terrain. So, and then new to this book, point of separation gets highlighted. So point of separation is the point at which a person that's traveling with a group of people, if they're traveling with, you know, a buddy or, or a group of people, the point of separation is when they, are, are you know get separated either they get left behind they you know take a turn off of the off the trail to they go off ahead. relieve themselves they go ahead whatever the case may be and it almost seems like as soon as they go they break off that's when they disappear and vanish so it would lead you to think that perhaps maybe they've been watched this entire time and that's you know the the point of vulnerability once they're away from the group that's when they get snatched if that's what's going on so something to keep in mind. I also want to mention too, because this is actually on the introduction to this book, which again, Missing 411, Off the Grid, fantastic book. David Politis mentions that the National Park Service has given him commercial requester status for all Freedom of Information Act requests, which gives them the ability to charge up to four times what they charge an ordinary citizen request. So they're making it more expensive for him to get files on people. Which doesn't make any sense to me because at least here in New Hampshire, we call it the 91A and because that's the RSA, the state law for the Freedom of Informa Information Act to get records on things and you can't charge. You're not allowed to charge. What you can charge for is... If you're going to have the documents printed on paper, the cost of the paper, and it has to stay within a certain amount, like you can't say, oh, I'm going to charge $10 a page. It has to be a reasonable amount, but usually by what everyone else charges. And if you need it on a USB or a CD drive, whatever the cost of that is, but you can't be charging extra. So I but just find it interesting. that's a state yeah. thing. This is the federal I government. I know, but it's like you think it would Park all be Service. consistent, but they've given him uh, such a hard time since the beginning. Yeah, they're making it difficult for him. So what he has said is that there are a lot of people that buy the books, are interested in these type of cases, of course, and they have begun helping out by requesting Freedom of Information Act requests, getting files on behalf of Politis and forwarding them off to his to him and his research team and he's actually included his contact information in the book i'm going to actually put that in the show notes so mm -hmm. anybody that's listening that may be interested and maybe because wants to I help do out that just because i have yeah knowledge with a lot of the freedom of information act so i'd like to do some requesting yeah there you go and so that we can help help the cause a little bit mm -hmm. try to figure out what the hell is going on here with these missing 411 cases but uh yeah, so I'll put, like I said, I'll put that contact info in the show notes. We'll put his website and everything there. So if you're just, you can pick up some books. And uh, yeah, with that, you want to get into some of these? Yes, I do. All right. Would you like to begin or sure, shall I? I'll, I'll begin. Our first case 
comes from the great granite state. Our state. Where we currently reside, New Mm -hmm. Hampshire. All right. This is about James Foley. He went missing on July 10th, 1988 at 8 p.m. So again, evening hours at Pemigewasset Wilderness in New Hampshire. And he was 21 years old when he disappeared. So there were canines. He was disabled. There was exposure to the elements. And there was an area previously searched. 21-year-old James Foley from Milton, Massachusetts, suffered from depression and short-term memory loss. He hadn't gone on many journeys into the wilderness prior to taking a trip with friends in July 1988. David and Jim Skinner, 21-year-old twins, joined James and their friend Thomas Harris for an overnight camping trip. The foursome started their journey on July 10, 1988 by taking the wilderness trail into the Pemigewasset Wilderness Area. They were hiking through the White Mountain National Forest to the 13 Falls Campground. This location is approximately 20 miles west of Maine in New Hampshire and eight miles northeast of Lincoln. The group arrived after a strenuous eight mile hike and spent the night. The following morning, they had breakfast and started to walk out. They decided they would separate into two different two-man groups for the journey out. James was in the first pairing. The duo hadn't hiked long when James started to fall behind. He was carrying a duffel bag with warm clothing and a sleeping bag. James dropped far behind from his partner, eventually meeting up with the second group. He then got separated from this group and was on his own, and that was the point of separation. They told him they'd meet him at the trailhead. James never made it. His friends called authorities at 8 p.m. and reported him as a missing person. New Hampshire State Fish and Game Wardens took the lead on the search. The first formal day of the search and rescue was July 11th, and searchers covered more than 30 miles of trails. Initial reports stated that they believed James probably had made it to a roadway and hitchhiked home. Four different canine teams were brought in to locate a scent. They also utilized the Civil Air Patrol, an Army helicopter, scoured the wilderness zone, and many volunteer searchers covered the ground. On July 19th at 1.35 p.m., a searcher found James' body in a dry spot in the middle of a muddy, swampy area. A July 20th, 1988 article in The Telegraph had these details. But Fish and Game Major Henry Malk said a renewed search Tuesday in the area did not pay off and that the body was found in the original search area. Then there were these details in July 20, 1988 edition of the Lewiston Daily Sun. Fish and Game Lieutenant David Hewitt said at the scene the body was found about 1.35 p.m. He said it was in a swamp off the Franconia Brook Trail, about two and a half miles from the group's campground. Later in the same day was this article. He estimated that he personally walked by the spot where the body was found at least four times. Searchers described the area as very dense and thick. A July 1988 article on upi.com had the most in-depth statement on the search result. 
The area had been searched repeatedly by dozens of volunteers and state and federal warden who scoured the wilderness with use of planes, helicopters, and dogs for more than a week. There was no doubt that James was found in an area that had been searched many times. The coroner stated that there were no injuries to James' body and estimated he died on July 10th or 11th from exposure. This means he died the day he disappeared or the day after. How could this happen? He had a bag full of warm clothes and a sleeping bag. How did multiple canine teams miss this young man? He was found on a dry patch of ground, meaning he should have been visible from the air. How did air support miss him? Was his body even there while the search was underway? I've described identical situations hundreds of times. This cannot be just a coincidence. Readers of my past books know how often this happens. It is a situation one can almost forecast. A reporter for the Huffington Post wrote an article subtitled, Never Be Last in Line, about one of my books. It appeared that if one is first or last in a line of hikers and gets out of sight, there is a much greater chance of him or her disappearing, thus the title. This is exactly what happened to James. I really don't wish to blame anyone involved in this incident for James's disappearance. I've been on the trail hundreds and hundreds of times. You get into a rhythm, and it's difficult to slow yourself and stay with friends. There are a few searchers who understand the factors I lay out in the books, although that number is increasing daily. Yeah. So that happened in New Hampshire, and that's the thing. I mean, not placing blame, but when you're with somebody, I don't know. I wouldn't want to be left alone <laughs> on a trail. No, I, I would think that, I mean, especially, well... That that case took place. Nineteen eighty-eight. Eighty-eight. Okay, so it's not it, it's not like a more current case where perhaps they were aware of the missing four one one type of things that were going on. Uh, but yeah, it, yeah, it's it, it is. It's one of those things. Like, why would you why would you leave somebody behind? You know, I, I, again, I know what he's saying. You don't want to place blame on the people that were with him, and maybe they've gone hiking you know dozens of times before this and. Nothing had ever happened, and this is just kind of how they how they ruled. But yeah, it, it's it is very strange though that he's found again in a place that was searched four times. T- yeah, plenty of times before. So what happened? Where and he was, was he? Find, uh, found in a dry area. Like, why was he not seen? Well, they did say that the that it was a, a area that was thick with brush. That's true. But still. But if they, they went over it four times. Yeah, it's just so it it's makes almost, you wonder what's going and, and on. And how there. did he die that day of exposure in July? And he's got a yeah, and he's got warm clothes with him and everything else. It's I mean, usually like August starts getting cool. I know it's, you know, up in the White Mountains, so it does get cooler, but yeah, he's got a sleeping bag. And even if it was really hot during the day to die of exposure. I don't know. I don't know. Again, it's doesn't make any sense. That's why we, <laughs> that's why we have, I guess that's why they have books like this. I know. Where we can talk about these different things because, yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it just seems like he wasn't there when they were looking. There, There's something else. Yeah, it makes you think, okay, where'd he go? Did somebody take him somewhere? 
did he go somewhere inadvertently maybe did he step into a a wormhole a, 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 I don't know I mean these are the kind of things that you have to start thinking about because normal rational explanations don't work they don't make sense well I was just thinking about how we can travel through like quantum realms with our minds but to do it with our physical bodies why not I know but it we can astral travel, but to, again, with our physical body. So is there something causing that transfer for even our physical bodies to be somewhere else? Could or be, is yeah. there something causing them just not to be seen? Maybe they're there, but they're not being seen. Like they got the invisible cloak something. or something. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows that that that's why we're, Still scratching our heads trying to figure this out. That's why there's been 10 books and two documentaries on the subject and, and still no one has a clue yeah. of what's going on. Well, we did get a message from uh, a viewer, a watcher on YouTube, and we did a show about it. So maybe that is the answer. And I can't remember the how to say the name of who it is that's causing all this. But Sam J. Sam J. No, 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 no. That's that's the savior, right? But that's who they said they were. Right, but they said that the cause was another. Oh, like it was basically Satan. Uh, Right. Want to do another one? Yeah, (laughs) I was gonna say that just made me think of um, was it the Water Boy with Adam Sandler and his mom Kathy Bates? She's like, it's the devil. Oh, yeah. That's what it makes me think of. You can blame the devil for anything, Mm -hmm. right? We're going to go over to Alaska now, and we're going to talk about Sandra Gelber. This is a woman who disappeared on May the 4th, 2014, so a more recent case. And she disappeared at 3.30 p.m. in Juneau, Alaska. And she was 61 years old at the time of disappearance. This case involves drowning, blunt trauma, the wilderness, and a medical professional. This and the following story are two of the most coincidental cases I have ever documented. One of the consistent facts I have documented in my books is the death of medical professionals under highly strange circumstances. These two victims were both physical therapists, worked in the same city, and disappeared within two miles of each other. Sandra's case is a little different from any other I've documented in that she was never actually reported as missing. Sandra Gelber and her identical twin sister were born in Ashtabula, Ohio, a small city on Lake Erie northeast of Cleveland. Sandra attended the University of Dayton and graduated from Boston University's Sargent School of Physical Therapy. She married Tim Riley and they had two children, Will and Katie, both of whom were college age when this incident happened. Sandra was known for her love of the outdoors and walking trails and forests. This love for the woods may have been what drove Sandra to Alaska. She first worked in Sitka, then moved to Juneau, and then went to work for Bartlett Community Hospital on the edge of the wilderness just two miles north of Juneau. A few articles mentioned that Sandra was known for her work with autistic kids, adults and families, and how to bring these people into mainstream society. I was surprised to read about a physical therapist taking such a strong interest in autism, but it's a strange coincidence that I write about disabled children, such as those with autism, who have disappeared. 
In addition to the hospital's location next to the pure beauty of the woods, it also sits across the roadway from a saltwater channel that is direct access to the main water entry point for this portion of Alaska's coast. On May 4, 2014, Sandra worked her normal day shift at the hospital and got off work at 3 o'clock p.m. All indications show that she probably changed into some running attire, walked out of the hospital to the south, and took the Salmon Creek Trail. This runs northeast behind the hospital until it meets in parallel Salmon Creek, where it proceeds into deeper and thicker wilderness. Nobody knows what happened to Sandra between when she left the hospital and when she was found. Two hikers saw a figure lying in the creek approximately 40 feet from the trail. They pulled the body out of the water, started cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and called for emergency assistance. The body they found was Sandra's, and she was pronounced dead at 4.30 p.m. Police initially thought she'd had some type of medical issue that caused her death. Her body went on for autopsy. The coroner stated that Sandra had died from freshwater drowning coupled with blunt force trauma to the head. There was also a mention that Sandra had some type of pre-existing medical condition that nobody elaborated on or explained. At this point, the police and coroner suggested that she might have fallen down the hillside next to the creek. The allegation of the association of the hillside playing a role in her falling wasn't mentioned until long after the coroner completed the autopsy. Freshwater drowning coupled with blunt force is a typical finding I have documented dozens of times involving highly professional, smart, and competent people. The circumstances don't make sense and families are left with many questions. This case may seem mundane in comparison to many of the stories I document, but be patient. History repeats itself 19 days later, but in an even darker and more mysterious way. And we're going to read that, but before we do, I just want to mention some things about that. So blunt force trauma to the head. So she's somehow, something hit her head or she hit her head on something and fell into the creek, apparently face down, which caused her to drown. But I was wondering, so it could be a medical episode. They said she had some kind of medical condition, but wouldn't say what it was. Right. It's possible. She could have just fainted. Could have been something with her blood pressure. But then I, I just can't help but wonder, could there have been foul play? Could somebody have hit her over the head or done something to cause her to hit her head? See, that's immediately where my mind goes. I yeah. go to somebody, somebody hit her and... Somebody did it to her. Yeah, but it, she was found relatively quickly, though. She, but that, okay, and that's the thing. So, so obviously there's other people out there because she wasn't even reported missing. And yeah. it seems like within, what was it, like an hour and a half yeah, she was, was found? Yeah, it was quick. It was quick. She was found, yeah, so... <sighs> yeah. Maybe, maybe whatever. If this is a four one missing four one one type case, if this is whatever is doing it to, if it's the same thing, let's just say, maybe it was interrupted by these hikers that were coming up. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You, you never know. But that leads into the next case of Sharon. I want to say buoys. Booey? Booze? Booze? I I apologize if I'm mispronouncing the name. But she went missing on May 23rd of 2014 in Mount Roberts Trailhead in Juneau, Alaska. 
48 years old at the time of disappearance. Also a medical professional. There were canines involved. It happened in the wilderness, and she was a runner. Sharon Buies was born and raised in Aylmer, Ontario. Readers who look up Sandra Gelber's hometown of Ashtabula, Ohio, and then look up Aylmer, Ontario, will see what separates these two cities, Lake Erie. Aylmer is almost directly north of Ashtabula. I have repeatedly said that water is a common factor in these disappearances, and the Great Lakes figure prominently in many cases. Yes, both Sandra and Sharon were physical therapists in the small town of Juneau. These women were raised in cities directly on opposite sides of Lake Erie. Quite a strange coincidence. Sharon graduated from the McMaster University School of Physical Therapy in Ontario. She specialized in orthotic casting and running and gait analysis. She left Ontario for California, then moved to Juneau. She was employed by Juno Physical Therapy and also worked weekly at the Skagaway Dahl Memorial Clinic. She was the youngest of seven children and lived with her three cats. At 48 years old, Sharon wasn't slowing down. She played hockey, loved kayaking and cycling, and ran daily. When the weather permitted, she tried to get out on local trails and climb the peaks. Friends talked about her athletic prowess and willingness to push herself. They said she had recently biked from Alaska to Canada and had taken a camping trip to Greenland. Sharon pushed herself on many levels. Not only was she always doing things to stay in shape, but she also had a private business that sold orthopedic chairs. She was last seen May 23rd when she shipped two chairs from Alaska Marine Lines in Juneau. She had made plans to meet the Juno Alpine Club the morning of May 24th for a hike to Hawthorne Peak and Sheep Mountain. When the group arrived, they found her car parked at the Mount Roberts Trailhead on Basin Road and believed she'd left early. One of Sharon's best friends and hiking companions, Ann Johnson, knew of Sharon's trip with the Alpine Club. When she hadn't heard from her friend by 9.30 p.m. on May 24th, she said she felt something was odd and went to look for her buddy. She determined Sharon wasn't home and started checking trailheads. She located Sharon's black Honda Civic covered in thick pollen at the Mount Roberts trailhead. It was obvious the car had been there for more than just the day. She called Juno police and reported her friend missing. By 1 o'clock a.m. on May 25th, Alaska State Troopers were on the scene and, and had initiated a search. Troopers tried to ping Sharon's cell phone and found it must have been turned off. They sent a helicopter team into the air on four occasions. A Coast Guard H-60 scanned the area with FLIR on multiple days and found nothing. The Alaska State Trooper helicopter spent two days searching Mount Roberts and the region around the trail. Part of the search included canines from Alaska Sea Dogs and the Alaska Dog Association. Reports indicated that dogs picked up Sharon's scent near the trailhead and near the tramway. None of the scent was tracked far. As the days went on, Alaska State Troopers and Juno Police upped the effort. They searched Sharon's house and made a heartbreaking find. 
her personal locator beacon, an item that could have saved her life. Her friends and family were going through gut-wrenching times. They could not believe Sharon had left for a hike without telling anyone she was going, activating her cell phone, or bringing her personal locator device. Some readers may wonder whether this event was related to a suicide, but police said suicide was never part of the investigation, and research showed Sharon was in excellent mental health. She never would have jeopardized the health of her three cats by leaving them alone in her home, and her activity on May 23rd showed that she was still being conscientious about her business and had shipped product. On May 29th, the Alaska State Troopers announced they had found nothing and had exhausted all obvious search locations. The effort to locate Sharon was formally over. In June, local residents organized another three-day effort to locate her. It was well orchestrated, and they knew the areas that hadn't been covered well and headed in that direction. This group again found nothing. The sad reality in missing person cases is that after a few weeks, family members go home, friends move on with their lives, and law enforcement is usually confronted with another big case. The missing local physical therapist slowly moves off the front page, and people start to forget. It's possible that a hiker may stumble onto Sharon's body in a boulder field or at the bottom of a cliff, probably in an area nobody thought she'd go and in a region search and rescue never traveled. I will never forget the circumstances of Sharon's disappearance and Sandra's being found in a creek. It's all too surreal. Yeah, they have a lot of similarities. And they're both physical therapists. They grew up across from the lake. They both, yeah, they both grew up with a, with a body of water, Lake Erie, separating them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't similar ages, the, the, the first uh, person. But they weren't like super. But they were, no, they weren't similar ages. I mean, uh, Sa- uh, Sandra Gelber was, was older yeah, by, like, by, by like almost 20 um, years. Uh, but yeah, both physical therapists, both yeah. grew up essentially around the same area and both ended up dying well, we can only assume that Sharon died, but her body was never found. Nobody knows where she is, so yeah, presumed dead. But what are what are the po- what are the odds? It, it makes of that, so know? that makes me wonder: is it something like a predetermined thing, like based off of who you are? And I don't know: is it something about these individuals, like they kind of got picked at birth, if you will, to be taken to be gone to to go missing when you say it like that it makes me think of lost the tv show lost and how the the occupants of the island uh, were they had things were chosen at birth you know yeah it's it's just i don't know (laughs) i have no way i don't know like what do you say i mean we we can we can determine that the first case it could be a number of things. It could be obviously yeah. foul play. It could be just some, you know, who knows? Somebody hit her. She fell, and then she or she could have had an accident, or she could have had a medical episode. I mean, she was getting older. She, you know, she was an older woman. Physical exertion at any age is is taxing on the body, but especially as you age, who knows? Maybe maybe she passed out. We don't we don't know. We're never gonna know. Obviously. But for the second woman. The second woman, though, obviously an experienced hiker, 
obviously experienced in the outdoors. And why would she leave her stuff at home? Has has stuff that she would take with her if she'd go out. She has a personal locator, a transponder. She has it. Why wouldn't she take it if she's going? Yeah, like but you said. What's if, weird is like her car was there. When did she go there? It almost seems like mystery. she went missing the night before. Well, I mean, the car had more than a day's worth of pollen on it. So it'd been there a bit. And I wondered, I'm like, you could see my car and be like, oh, there's more than a day's worth of pollen if you don't wash it. But obviously her friend knows her. She knows her car. She saw her. Right. So yeah. you kind of have to rule that out. It's a weird one. It's a weird one. Again, why would she go out there? Why would she not have all the, you know, wouldn't have her cell phone turned on, wouldn't have the personal. And lo- even if she got locator. there early, why wouldn't she wait for everybody? Even if she got there that morning, why wouldn't she wait for everyone and uh, not bring her stuff? To me, it seems like she went there the night before or somebody moved her car there. That could also be a possibility as well. I mean, this could just be foul play. This could, could be. be they moved her car. Because she didn't take anything, they mu- maybe they they knew her that she was going to be there, and it's easier to go hide a body off in the woods in Alaska. It could very well be. I mean, uh, it's 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 mysterious and strange on yeah. its face. But if you dig down deep and you hypothesize a little and you say, "Well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be one it of those." It could be anything. It could definitely be one of those. Per- I mean, one of those possibilities, like you said, it could be if somebody just snatched her. And then took her car and dumped her body somewhere out there. But where out there did they dump it? Or is it even dumped there? If if it, you know what I mean? Because well, when you think about the it, area to, to was carry searched, a body, so. to carry a body, even if she's like 110 pounds, hiking with that. So right. I'm just saying it would make more sense that somebody took her. And like brought her to that point and she was alive and they brought her to a point where they would kill her, where it could be far, where hard to get to or something. But to like kill somebody and then, you know, drag the body carrier or whatever, that seems like it would be way too much work. I Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> or or alternately, maybe she was never dumped at that site at all. Yeah. Maybe just the car was. The car was there and she's somewhere else. And maybe else. that's why she's never been that found. That would make too. more sense too. Yeah, so very strange, very strange. Next, we're going to head to Wyoming. All right, so J.R. Piper in Wyoming, missing July 30th, 1900 at 7 p.m. So again, evening hours. Now this is 1900, so this is 121 years ago. We're going back in time. Going back in time. Yellowstone National Park. Age at disappearance, 35 years. And one of the things with this is it happened at a national park, which is where David Politis kind of started with these, with the disappearances yeah, in national and Ye- parks. Yellowstone's the biggest cluster. That's, yep, the biggest so. one. The central point of this incident was, fa- was the Fountain Hotel inside the border of Yellowstone National Park. The hotel was built between 1890 and 1891 for a cost of $100,000. It served as the luxury stop for stagecoach travelers wanting a wilderness and geyser experience. The facility was advanced for its time. It had 133 rooms, 141 beds, steamed heat from the geysers, 
and piped hot water to the rooms. It also had a wine and dining room and a large kitchen. The chefs needed a constant flow of food to feed visitors, and this was supplied by a large herd of cattle kept in the park. A side note to all the tourists visiting the hotel was the issue of garbage. The hotel made a huge garbage pit away from the location that turned into a major tourist attraction as it attracted huge bears. As time passed, tourists heard about Old Faithful and slowly the crowds moved from the fountain to the bigger, bolder geyser. As the crowds left, the hotel lost money and eventually completely closed in 1916. It stood as a large, vacant reminder of better times at the Fountain Geyser until 1927 when it was torn down. If you go to the area and look very hard, you will find vague remnants of the foundation. J.R. Piper was a 35-year-old cashier for First National Bank. Where he was from varies from article to article. Some say he was from St. Mary, Montana, and others say St. Mary's, Ohio. All articles state that he was single and on a stagecoach trip of the West. The group he was traveling with made several stops, and it was noted that JR was always one of the last people to join the coach before it left. Some of the city stops indicated that he would arrive so late that some believed he was lost, as it could be the only reason he was so late. During the week of July 23, 1900, the stagecoach left Moneta, Montana, and headed toward Yellowstone Park. JR was riding in the coach, and according to reports, he had a bad cough during much of the trip. It was apparent to the group that he was a somewhat wealthy man, as he didn't seem too concerned about cash. There was one interesting description about JR in the August 3rd, 1900 edition of the Anaconda Standard, and it said, Piper is a single stone mason, a member of the Mystic Shriners, and the order is taking an active interest in the search. The stagecoach arrived at the Fountain Hotel, and people got settled. JR was a social guy who did many things alone. Some called him eccentric while others called him mentally unstable. On July 30th, 1900 at 6 p.m., JR went to the hotel's dining room and had dinner. After he finished his mail, he stopped at the hotel newsstand, purchased a cigar, and stepped onto the balcony. He was wearing his black derby hat and blue shirt. He was seen walking into the woods, and this is the point of separation, and that was the last time anyone saw the man. The following morning, hotel staff realized JR had never returned to his room. They summoned nearby soldiers who, along with hotel staff and guests, began to scour the region in an effort to find him. Articles stated that a Mr. Bueller from St. Mary's responded to the park to assist in a search for his friend. JR's brother-in-law, Dr. Sheets, made a trip from San Francisco to search for JR. He actually slept under the stairs outside the, at night, trying to listen for howling coyotes that might lead him to the body. The formal and informal searches for JR went on for weeks. Approximately three weeks after JR vanished, Dr. Sheets made a public statement that still stands today. JR will never be found. 
Many at the hotel believed he fell into one of the hot pools, although there was no proof of this. Others thought he got lost or was attacked by a predator. There was never any evidence that an animal took JR down. And the same article I quoted above was this quote. It seems as if the earth opened up and swallowed him. End quote. Later in the same article was this quote. His disappearance is as complete and mystifying as if he had suddenly dropped from the earth. End quote. I've read similar quotes like this hundreds of times. I have never seen anything anywhere in modern times about this disappearance. Why? Why would the Park Service care about a disappearance that happened over 100 years ago? Well, maybe it's not that one disappearance concerns them. Maybe it's the language and circumstances researchers will read about the time after time explaining circumstances of other cases. I have outlined requests from families to the National Park Service about asking for additional searchers, asking for the use of helicopters, and so on. Those requests were routinely denied in the articles I have documented. Unbelievably, even in the 1900s, families were denied resources when asked for the assistance in searching for JR. The September 9, 1900 edition of the Anaconda Standard had these details. Quote, The men that were in the butte last night had a story to tell of Captain Good, the commander of the Fort Yellowstone Park. They said that he denied their request for a scouting party and it was only after applying to his superior at Washington that their very reasonable request was granted and this after a four week delay, end quote. Think about this fiasco. J.R. disappeared and locals asked the fort for assistance in searching for him by way of, of a scouting party. The fort initially refused, and the family members appealed to Washington. Officials sat on the request for a remarkable four weeks, ample time for J.R. to be long gone and dead via predation, if he had been in the area. J.R. was never found, nor were his personal belongings or his cigar. Wow. So this happened in the 1900s. And even then, it, it, it just seems like the way David Politis wrote about it. It's like they knew. They knew this kind of stuff was going on. They knew something was going on. Maybe not exactly what, but they knew something was happening. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I got to say, too, I, I know what he said there about families requesting for additional resources mm-hmm. and things like that and then being denied. I guess you have to look at that on a case-by-case basis and really why was it denied? Maybe the resources were not available. Maybe they just weren't, they couldn't give them because they didn't have them to give. I I don't know. Again, that, that's just me trying to play, look at it from all sides, I and, guess. Yeah, and you can argue that, but to say four weeks to get a decision on a missing person. That, that's that's a bit much. Yeah. yeah that, that is a bit much. But again, we don't know. We don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's just, it seems unacceptable. It, it does, it, yeah, it does seem like a really long time. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I've got no theories on that one either. Like, he just, he walks off and that's the last time anybody sees him. Now, what I thought was interesting, they talk about this hotel and they mention the garbage pile mm-hmm. and it attracts bears. But I'm like, if you have a giant pit of garbage, could somebody fall in there? But wouldn't they have checked? Um... I, who wants to check the garbage pit? 
I guess. But look, can I, you I, hear I anyone? Like, I don't know. If he fell, let's just say it was a garbage pit. Maybe if he fell in the garbage pit and he hit his head and he got knocked out, and then there, it's a garbage pit. People are still throwing trash and nobody notices him and they're just covering him in trash. That's a possibility. I mean, who knows? And really, who's going to want to check the garbage? And maybe that just that's just it. Nobody thought to check the garbage because they didn't. Maybe I don't know. Again, I don't know the geography yeah. of the, or the area there. And obviously, it was over a hundred years ago. But maybe the trail he was last seen walking in was nowhere near the garbage pit. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm curious too why he went out walking by the trails at nighttime. Maybe but he just felt like he wanted I, to. I, I I don't know. I just feel like Yellowstone, where there's so many wild animals, you got to be really careful. But it's also the 1900s, yeah. and and people maybe were not at, were were careful and were cognizant of the wild animals, but were maybe more educated in the outdoors maybe. and and were more uh, aware of their surroundings and used to being outside. And it wasn't something like I know. I just think maybe have a uh, firearm or something, uh, but it doesn't yeah, say it doesn't say about if he that. did or didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think people back then had a lot more respect for the outdoors because that's primarily where they, well, a lot of people spent their time. I, yeah. I, I don't oh, know. Yeah, Cities absolutely. were not Way as more than what populated. people do now. Right. Cities yeah. not as populated as they are now. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It, it was over a hundred years ago. So it's hard to say, yeah. but uh, I don't know. I, I think we should do one more. What do you okay. think? Yeah. One more. Yeah. And, and uh, this case was a little, Strange. Actually, we're going to do two la- two last ones, and we're going to go to the great state of Illinois for these final two. This this next one's really weird, so get ready. Michael Lamont Dixon went missing April the twenty eighth, nineteen eighty seven, at two forty five a.m. in Danville, Illinois. He was eleven years old. He traveled a great distance barefoot and had loss of memory. Danville, Illinois sits on the Indiana border with the Wabash River going through the center of the community. Danville also has Lake Vermilion on its northwest border and the Kickapoo State Recreation Area to its west. The victim in this case lived at 529 East Madison Street in Danville, a residence that sits close to two notable landmarks. Stony Creek is behind the residence and empties into the Wabash River and the city railroad yard sits on the opposite side of the creek. Many issues with this story will challenge readers' belief systems, including their belief in news reports, their understanding of how far a small boy can travel, and their knowledge of how many obstacles that same small boy might overcome during the journey. On April 27, 1987, at 10 o'clock p.m., Dorothea Dixon and her seven children were living at the above-listed address on East Madison Street. She put 11-year-old Michael to bed, and he went to sleep. Not long after putting Michael down for the night, Mrs. Dixon went to sleep. At 2.45 a.m., Mrs. Dixon received a phone call that would rock her world. Here we go. An April 29, 1987 Associated Press article in the Morning News of Wilmington, Delaware sets the stage for what happened in this story. Quote, 
a barefoot 11-year-old whose mother says he sleepwalks, was discovered walking along railroad tracks near Peru, Indiana early Tuesday, nearly 100 miles from his Illinois home. Michael Lamont Dixon remembers nothing of his trip, said police in Peru, a city of 15,000 people north of Indianapolis. Supposedly, he hopped a freight train and wound up here in Peru, said police chief Bill Page. He woke up and got off and thought he was still in Danville, end quote. You might want to read the previous excerpt again. The police say the boy remembers nothing, yet the police imply they know what happened. Michael was found walking along the tracks barefoot and wearing only pants and a t-shirt. He was not wearing a coat, socks, or shoes. Nighttime temperatures in Peru averaged 45 degrees during this time of the year. Very chilly. I'd like readers to search for Michael's home address online and look at a satellite photo from Google Maps. It would be seemingly impossible for someone living at his address to make his way from his residence to the railroad tracks without traveling through the creek. If he went through the creek asleep, you'd think he would be caked with mud, but he was never identified as muddy. He was described as dirty and barefoot. The county health nurse described Michael as a very quiet young man. Police in Peru contacted Dorothea and asked if she knew where her son was. She said he was in bed. They asked her to look, and to her shock, he wasn't. The family made the trip to a Peru, Indiana hospital where he was being treated for small cuts on his feet. I have always said water and boulders play a major role in the disappearances we cover. It is a major league coincidence that the Wabash River ran through each of the two cities. The title of the article that I quote in this story was, Sleepwalking Boy Found 100 Miles From Bed. There is no doubt that Michael went to sleep in Danville, Illinois at 10 o'clock p.m. Nobody in the house heard him open a door and leave. He was found 100 miles away, four hours and 45 minutes later. He had to forge a creek, find an empty rail car, and ride that car while asleep for 100 miles. He then had to wake up enough to carefully get off the car and walk down the street. One article stated that railroad officials called police, but no other articles I found included that tidbit. An April 28th article in the Logansport Pharaohs Tribune had these details. Quote, Norfolk Southern officials spotted the boy walking east of Peru on US 24 near Country Club Road. End quote. Just for clarity, Nobody saw him walking the tracks, as other articles implied. Michael was found adjacent to Schrock Creek, a tributary to the Wabash, as was the creek near his house. I doubt we will ever know how Michael traveled 100 miles in just a few hours. Yeah, I mapped it. I Google mapped it. And yeah, you can see there's a few different waterways between the two places the towns from his address but that's also it's a three-hour drive yeah it's a three-hour drive and do trains travel that fast and there just so happened to be a train at that time and 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 let's say the train could make that that distance right let's say it could make it in that amount of time 
a kid sleepwalking is going to hop onto a train moving that fast and then hop off it when it gets... Well, because I was like, did it stop somewhere where he could have gotten on and then stopped in Peru? Maybe. I guess I guess uh, if you could find like a train schedule... But I mean, did they, did they look? Did stuff? they look into that? Because they just know. assume, but nobody actually saw him, according to witnesses, on the tracks. But like Politis is pointing out, the river. Mm-hmm. So what, did he not travel the train tracks and maybe traveled somehow on the river? On a boat? On a, a some, something? Yeah. I, I don't know. And, and how scary is that as a parent? You tuck your kid into bed. Yeah. And then you get a call from the police. Your kid is 100 miles away. When I first read that, I, I read a little quick and it said Peru. I'm like, how the fuck did a kid get from fucking <laughs> Illinois to Peru, South America? South America. Oh, man. Yeah. I had to stop <laughs> and back out. Okay. Illinois. That, Illinois. Okay. But I mean, geez, still like what? How? And nobody heard him open the door to leave the house. I mean, it's, and I've it's, heard stories about kids getting out kids, even like the child safety things you put on the door so they can't open the door. They figure young it kids out. can figure it out. And, and there have been stories about parents who lock the doors and they have those kid proof things on the doors and the kids still get out in the middle of the night, which is scary enough as it is. But I'm we, glad it's a happy ending. The child was safe. But to think about it, the kid traveled over 100 miles. And he has in no, what, four hours? And he has no memory of how he and did no it. And no memory. And it's like, it's almost as if someone snuck in, picked him up in his sleep, and just somehow shot straight through. But he did have cuts. His feet were dirty. So he, he must have been walking. Well, I mean, they found him walking. Yeah. So obviously he was walking. But was he walking for just a short distance? If he just had small cuts on his feet, and he's barefoot, you figure... He obviously didn't walk that distance in four hours. That didn't happen. We can rule that out. Yeah. But he had to walk out of his house to get into or onto something that would have transported him that that distance, right? Yeah. And then, obviously, whatever, what, however long he was walking before he was discovered or seen. Yeah, I don't know. This this one just. I and don't know. even if he had to go through like the 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 water. Wouldn't he be wet, muddy? You, you would think, but, but, he, he, wasn't. but he wasn't. So, and and again, we're going off of, and and that's the thing. Politis is at the mercy of news reports, yeah. and and this uh, is from the late eighties, right? So you're going based. Uh, fortunately, if 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 there are more recent cases, you can actually reach out to family members, people involved in the search, law enforcement officials, if they want to talk to you. So you have that. I guess that tool in your toolbox, if, if, if you're able to use it, but with a lot of these older cases, all you have microfiche from libraries, Mm. you know, any kind of, uh, reports that were filed, perhaps if you're able to get them, if they're even available, Mm. if there were, if they were even done, you know, so you're kind of at the mercy a lot of times of just published news reports. And especially nowadays, we know how reliable the news can be. Obviously, it had a little bit more trust back then, but 
that's the, what you have to go on. So the other thing I with what you said with the news, I don't know if a lot of people notice this, but nowadays things can happen and it will never end up in the news because there's a bigger story taking place because it's no longer just your local news. They're covering local, but also like everywhere, state. You know, region, state. Oh, I just sorry, I just hit the mic. Region, state, even national news, everything. It's like we're getting everyone's news from everywhere and international. Before, like something really big had to make the paper, you know, for your local paper if if it was outside of your area. So this kind of stuff would make the news. But nowadays, there's so much stuff that happens in your own neighborhood that doesn't make the local news. Yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. Crazy, crazy mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. I, I, That's scary. I, you know, as I, a parent. It, it is. It's is scary. scary. And I mean, we, we ha- we've had, we had a, a missing, uh, a girl that went missing yeah. on our street. It happened mm-hmm. uh, several walked, years ago. Walked out of the house. She just walked out of the house. Yeah, and the parents, girl. yeah, and the parents were looking for her. And I remember you were pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. And the, the police were knocking on our door at like three o'clock nope, in the morning. Nope, they didn't knock on the door. No, I'm sorry. I woke you're right. You're right. You're I right. heard, because I'm a late sleeper, right. I heard wailing, crying. And I'm like, is our neighbor drunk? Like, what's going on? It was almost like a screaming. And I'm trying to look around outside to see what's going on. And it's like, I think it was like three in the morning and I just come downstairs and then like I see flashlights. I'm like, what, what's going on? So I shut off the alarm and I, I, you know, open the door, go outside and I see their cops. And as I was up, I had my phone and we get, uh, they're called Nixle alerts. So it's like local alerts from your police saying that there was a missing child. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So there's a child missing. And so I'm like, you know, just again, I'm like just getting out of bed at three in the morning and I'm looking at my phone and I'm trying to put two and two together and I'm just like, is everything okay? Cause they're coming on the property. I'm trying to figure out like, is it something else? And he's like, oh yeah, we're looking for someone. I'm like, is it the missing child? And he's like, do you know where she is? And I'm like, no, I just saw the alert come through on my phone. He's like, if you see anything, you know, let us know. And I'm like, absolutely. I was like, I need to go find this child because that's just, it's, it's like this animal instinct urge pulling at me to help. And Alex did not want me to. Cause you were pregnant. And it was like snowy and ice outside, and but snowing I didn't care. And icy. I didn't care. So it's not like I had no heart. It's just, I, I kind of care about, concerned for my concerned own safety. You but that's me. I, like, I don't care about, like, I'm fine. Goodness. Like, let me go. But it turned out she was a few houses. She was like two houses down from us. And, so basically one, two, three, four houses down. Yep. And she was, what? she like, went into she went like into their a, house. She just went to somebody's house. And went into the bed. They work nights. Yeah. And like went into somebody's bed and fell asleep. Yeah. And nobody noticed until, I guess, was it they got home or they somebody else home, woke up? Uh, yeah, they, I think they found her around 11 o'clock yeah, the next morning. Yeah, it was 10 or morning. 11, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was insane. And and our, our whole entire street and area was just police, mm-hmm. news ca- news crews. They, they made us check our cars because, oh, yeah. like, in ca- I was like, my doors are locked, but we can look, you know? And, like, just to make sure she didn't crawl in somewhere. I mean, I was checking all around our property, like, anywhere a child could get in. Yeah. And, of course, like, I wanted to go help, and I'm, like, bawling hysterically that, you know, I couldn't help, and it just killed me that I couldn't. But 
it was just like she ended up she was fine but it happens kids but it's really weird that like this kid was known for sleepwalking but 100 miles we're back to the 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 book again now yeah okay you just went from talking about this well you brought it up i know but you went segueing it back okay i just want to make sure we're on we're talking about the same thing okay Uh, you know she was four doors down this kid went 100 miles yeah in four hours. In four hours on foot, allegedly. Maybe by train. But, yeah. Well, again, with the, the train thing, I don't know. Is it possible? Sure. But did he, He'd have to cross a creek to get to the tracks. How'd that happen? Okay. So the final case we're going to do is Ambrose Monnier, who went missing on April the 21st, 2016, in Chicago, Illinois. 28 years old when he disappeared. Disappeared near water, was a medical professional, and an unknown cause of death. If you were a parent and wanted to raise a highly intellectual son with great habits, personal integrity, and athletic abilities, you'd use Ambrose Monnier as your guide and mentor. Ambrose was black. He was raised in Baltimore. He was an exceptional athlete in high school and excelled in academics. He had a brother who was three years younger. Both of the Monnier boys showed brilliance in school and directed themselves to being physicians. Ambrose was the first to apply and get accepted to the University of Guadalajara Medical School. He applied for a series of hospitals affiliated with the school to do his hospital rotations, during which he would start to learn to perform different types of surgery under the guidance of full-time physicians and began his rotations at the University of Chicago Jackson Park Hospital. He was near the top of his class and wanted to be a cardiologist. In late April 2016, students in Ambrose's class were getting graduation photos taken. The class would become doctors in less than a month. He was in a great mood. He was constantly studying, but that was his mindset. Joseph Monnier, Ambrose's 25-year-old brother, was also a medical student in the same program as his brother. They were constant companions, shared stresses and stories, and were tightly bound with their mother. Joseph would say later that he and Ambrose came from a long line of physicians. Some of the dates reported in this incident don't correlate with other dates. The missing person poster for Ambrose states he was missing on April 21st, 2016. There were reports he was last seen on that day walking near the hospital, while other reports stated he was last seen near the library. On May 4th, police clarified that Ambrose was last seen on April 22nd in the area of 55th Street and Lake Park Avenue. Joseph said he tried to text his brother on April 23rd, didn't get an answer, and went to locate him. A May 4th, 2016 article on foxnews.com had these details. Quote, Joseph Monnier stated he entered his brother's locked studio apartment at around 5 o'clock p.m. on Sunday, April 24th, after he didn't respond to a text message sent the previous night. There, Ambrose's brother said he found a reading lamp, air conditioning unit and standing fan turned on. Fresh groceries were stocked in the refrigerator and Monnier's laptop was sitting in its usual spot according to his brother. The only items missing were his cell phone and wallet." The family shrugged off the idea that the high stress of school and upcoming finals might have bothered the student, 
They said he was used to the high pressure. Chicago police said they were trying to track down the young man. They never mentioned whether they pinged his cell phone, but they must have, though they didn't release the results. Nothing happened on the missing person case for 16 days. On May 8, 2016, a hiker saw what they believed was a body in Lake Michigan near Promontory Point Park in the 5400 block of South Lake Shore Drive. The body was recovered and later confirmed to be Ambrose's. It's worth noting that Ambrose lived in the 5500 block of South Everett Avenue, probably less than a quarter mile from the lake and where he was found. The Cook County Coroner came out with the following statement in the May 12, 2016 edition of the Chicago Tribune. Quote, An autopsy Monday was inconclusive about the cause and manner of his death, and more studies were being conducted, according to the medical examiner's office. End quote. In one chapter of my book, Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence, I wrote about a series of disappearances of young men in the greater Chicago area who vanished in the city and were found in the river or the lake. Many of the cases I documented have the same conclusion on the cause of death. Coroners are stumped. Dr. Talika Patrick went missing on December 5, 2013 and her car was found on the side of a roadway. She was found deceased in Lake Charles approximately five months later. This lake had been searched many times. It was approximately one mile from Lake Michigan and less than 100 feet away from the Little Calumet River where the body of a missing student from downtown Chicago was found. Refer to Missing 411, a sobering coincidence for details. Talika was a physician. Ambrose was three weeks from becoming a physician. Both were found in bodies of water days after they vanished. There were no witnesses to the events and the circumstances were baffling. Ambrose was a model young man. He never got into trouble and he studied religiously. He was close to his family and he had direction and purpose in his life. When you look at the amount of crime and number of problems Chicago has, the number of stellar people found in the city's waterways seems disproportionate. I've never read about a vagrant, drug user, or alcoholic found under these circumstances. It's always society's cream of the crop. I can't imagine the grief the Monnier family experienced to Ambrose's loss. We went over that book, Missing 411 is Sober and Coincidence, last time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, like you're reading it, it's like, yep, comes up a lot. And, and I was thinking maybe smiley face killers like we brought up before. Yeah, yeah. But it's also with those similarities that the two women in Alaska both worked in the medical field, physical therapists. And yeah, and the Talika Patrick case uh, that he was mentioning was mm-hmm. in the Sober and Coincidence book. I mean, what... <laughs> Two doctors again found. It's it just, it's it, it it's very baffling, and it is quite interesting. He brings up that that point that he makes about it's people that maybe will contribute to society in a positive way. The cream of the crop, as he called them, disproportionately, those people are found. But why? Yeah. What well, what's going on what's there? What's interesting again, somebody who went food shopping, his fridge was full, had his fan, his AC on. I mean, he was planning on coming back. It's it's it doesn't seem like he was even planning on being gone very long. So was there some kind of 
accident? Was there some kind of foul play? Or was there just something else that we don't know that makes no sense? Was he called away? Did something call him away? Did he? Yeah, it's it's just, it's very strange. Did he get like, some kind of. Did they check his cell phone records? Like that's they, something I'd, I'd I, be curious about. I presume that they must have done those type of things. Yeah. They, but I mean, they're not going to release that to the media. No. I wouldn't but, think. But these but. are the things that I'm thinking about. Yeah. Retracing his steps. What happened? Where did he go? Are there any video cameras? Like you think Chicago. And this is Chicago. This is not the wilderness or the woods. No, this is Chicago. It was what, 2016? Exactly. So it's not that long ago. Are there any like street cameras in that area? Anything that could pick anything up? Yeah, I know we don't wonder. have the answers. These are we, the questions we, I'm asking. We do not have those answers, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean we we could we could talk about this every show. This could be the, the Homewrecker podcast. Could be the missing we could just missing four on one show. I mean, but uh, I mean, yeah. And, and the thing is, in this I, book, there's so many incredible stories that just are so baffling. And I, I said it in the beginning. David Politis does such an incredible job of doing his research and putting everything together and writing it in a way that is captivating, but also informative. And uh, I mean, it's just tough because I just want more answers. We all do. And, and he, he com- does. Right. Well, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he compiles the data. He, he, uh, you know, he'll, for example, in the back here, table one, he's got a table of uh, victim age and missing by sex, and he has all that compiled. Uh, he's got his stats. He, he's got, yeah, he, he, he'll he figure out different ways and different things to keep track of. And, and to look at it, are, are what do they have in common? What else do they have in common? Yeah, a, a very, very analytical and, and, and very, very detailed in, yeah. in his research. It's It's very impressive and... It's just, it's incredible that still we have no answers. None. These are just, there's no answers. And and again, going back, uh, if we could, to the, the Illinois case, yeah. the, the first Illinois the first case, we talked about the boy. No memory? He's 11. It's not like he's a, he's a, a nonverbal child or anything like that, but has no memory and can't communicate and express what happened. He doesn't know how he got out of his bed. Well, if he was sleeping, if he was sleepwalking, sleepwalking, fine, but he has no idea. He thought he was still in his hometown. Yeah. You're telling me that he got on either a boat or a train or whatever and had no memory of it. But the other thing with that too, that's a common thread is a lot of times when people, especially children are found, they don't remember. Right. Even though they can talk and communicate, they don't remember. Something is so it fits that. Yeah, something's messing with the memory. Something's messing with the mind. And it makes like I again, I start to wonder like, could it be drug induced? Do they check for puncture marks on the on people's bodies? The kids in an examination. That's a good point. That's true. Because like, are are they being are they given something that causes them? Are they doing talk screens to see if there's something in their system, whether they had to ingest it or breathe it in? Yeah, something maybe that was inhaled. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah, it's very just baffling. Like, what's going on? Yeah. What is going on? We don't know. We don't know. We don't have the answers. But if you know, or if you have your thoughts and you want to share them with us, you Do can your find us. Yes. You can find us on social media. We have a Twitter. At Homewrecker Pod. 
And you can also find us on our website. Homeworkerpodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please like, subscribe, hit the follow button, whatever it is you do, however you listen to us or watch us. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. And how can people find you on social media? Well, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Monique Giselle underscore. And if you're interested in hypnotherapy, Understandings Hypnosis is also on Twitter. It's at Monique P-C-H-T. And you can go to my website, tarotbymonique.com. You can get a tarot and oracle reading or incense, organite, candles, lots of fun stuff. Or if you're interested in hypnosis and hypnotherapy, you can schedule a free 20-minute consult by going to innerstandingshypnosis.com and all that information will be in the show notes. And Alex, my love, how can people find you? I am also on Twitter at TheAlexArion. And soon you can go and check out alexarionfitness.com because it will be back online. Woohoo! And that's that. That's that. That is that. So, until the next time, thank you again for joining us, friends. I am the Golden Greek, Alex Arion. I've been joined, as always, by my beautiful, lovely, gorgeous, amazing, certified hypnotherapist, lovely, gorgeous, did I say all those already? I think so. Can I say them again anyway? Sure, whatever. Whatever you want. My wife. The lovely Monique. And you've been listening to the Home Wrecker podcast.